Last week's teaching focused mainly on Peter, his role. Uh, look at this claim by the Roman Catholic Church that Peter was the first pope. Can you uh, give me one reason why he couldn't be, or he wasn't? John? Okay. Right? He wasn't the leader of the Acts 15 council in Jerusalem. Very good. John? He's married. He's married. Okay. Yep. Yep. He's a little rock. He wasn't the bedrock, right? And we talked about that in the Greek, how there's different words there, and they mean different things. And uh, what was the objection that uh, Catholics will give to that interpretation of this, this verse? Yeah. Aramaic would be the same word. Yeah, Aramaic would be the same word. Same with Hebrew would be the same word. And uh, you know, they make a claim that I've heard some people make that the Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. Uh, well, they can make that claim if they want to, but we don't have any text to back that claim up. There's not one manuscript available with Matthew written in Hebrew. So if they want to make that claim, that's fine. The same claim the Muslims make that the gospel has become corrupted. Well, proved by the manuscripts. Let's see one that's become corrupted. <coughs> Any other reason you could think of that he couldn't have been the Pope, the first Pope? What about church history? Yeah, it was it was sixth century before they even ever called someone Papa or Pope, the Bishop of Rome. That do the do the scriptures ever say such a thing about Peter? That he's the leader of the whole church? That he's a bishop of bishops? Okay. He denied Jesus? Okay. Well, yeah. Seemed like that would disqualify you for being a pope, huh? But he did repent. He did repent. So he got restored. And God did use him as a leader. No doubt about that. And so what is this, uh, this issue of... Um, the gates of hell not prevailing against the church. What is or the gates of Hades not prevailing against the church? What does that mean? You remember what that means? What is Hades? Yeah, yeah, boat of the dead, temporary boat of the dead. So I said hell the first time because that's what I've heard all my life. You heard me say it the first time. I kind of slipped up there, but. That's a beautiful thing. They think this is talking about Satan's kingdom not prevailing against, against God's kingdom. Now, is death a tool that Satan uses to try, try to get people away from the faith? It's a tool he may even use against you, eventually. As, we, as evil waxes worse and worse and lawlessness abounds, the love of most will grow cold, the Bible says. And so, uh, be careful, because as Christians, we know death has lost its sting. And someday death will be swallowed up in victory. Um, so we shouldn't let death dissuade us from uh, obeying God. So that, that the gates of Hades not prevailing against the church means that, that even death won't stop the, stop the church. The threat of death won't stop the church. What does it mean to be, when he said this bound on earth, bound in heaven, loose on earth, loose in heaven, what, is, what does that really mean there? What's he referring to? John? Okay. How does someone's sins get loosed? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yep. And so this, we talked about in the Greek here, uh, that it's not really, it's really the opposite. It's not, I'm declaring something that heaven does it. It's, I'm declaring what's already happened in heaven. So when I see someone be repentant about their sins, when they hear the gospel preach, I'm just declaring what's already happened in heaven. It's been loosed. And the bounding issue is the same thing. When someone responds improperly to the gospel, I can say, well, the gates of heaven are shut up against you. You have not entered in. I'm just declaring what I've, what I've seen by how they responded to the message. But it does not mean that as human beings... We have the right or the power to forgive some of their sins or not to forgive some of their sins. That's where the Roman Catholic Church gets off track. 
Okay, let's start <clears throat> this week in verse 27 of Matthew 16. I think it's important to read this verse. You know, chapter divisions aren't inspired. You keep that in mind. And really, it'd probably been better off there. I continued Matthew 16. I'll up to verse 13 uh, of Matthew 17. So, it really would have been Matthew... Uh, all up to 16, verse 41. <clears throat> okay, so let's read in at verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. <clears throat> and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. For they had lit, when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. <clears throat> and his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to, him, that said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Okay, the reason I went back to verse 27 is because it's going to help us understand what Jesus is saying here when he says in verse 28, there are some standing here who should not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now we're going to have some lots of problems as far as our eschatology if we take what Jesus is saying here in a literal sense that he's actually going to come back with his kingdom before some who are standing there will taste death. Not one, some. You know, cause some people would try to say, well, this is maybe talking about John and Revelation, all the things he saw in Revelation, but it's not just one here, it's some. So it's more than one. So some shall not taste death to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the, the, obviously the idea here in verse 27 and verse 28 is that uh, him coming in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Okay, so and this is now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led up in a high mountain by themselves. <clears throat> now, this six days thing, it, it may just be a coincidence here, <clears throat> but I don't think so. We talked about this before in this, in this fellowship about Chileanism. Do you remember what that, what that word means? Well, John, you know what it is? Yes, so very good. So it says in Peter, one day for the Lord, one day is like a thousand, or a thousand is like a day. And so we see this all throughout Scripture, these six-day, seventh-day thing, and that the early church believed this too, that since Adam and Eve's rebellion, there would be six days. And then the seventh day is the millennial reign, and then the eighth day, of course, is the eternity, reign of eternity. And so if that's true, even though the Bible doesn't explicitly say that, we know that since Adam and Eve sinned, which we don't know when that was, uh, would be 6,000 years, and then the Millennial Kingdom would come. Okay? And, uh, but I'm, what I'm trying to point out here, it may just be a coincidence, but I don't think it is, is that after six days, Jesus is going to give him a vision of what he's going to be like when he comes in his kingdom. Six days after he said to them, Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And six days later, after he said that, he shows them what he will be like when he comes in his kingdom. Um, and it says he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. That sounds very familiar. That's what you see in Revelation, in chapter 1, Revelation chapter 19. You also see it in Daniel chapter 7, when it talks about the coming of Christ. 
and the coming of God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and what he was like. In fact, let's just go to Daniel 7 real quick, and we can just read it. You can see what I'm talking about. <clears throat> we'll watch him. Well, Daniel 7, verse 9. And it says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Sounds familiar to what just talking about in verse 27 of Matthew 16. Uh, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous word with the horn, that's the Antichrist was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain, his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And for the rest of the beast, the kingdoms, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season of time. Those are those who had not taken the mark of the beast, who were not Christians. I was watching the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, come with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then the name was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus comes in the glory of the Father. We see the glory of the Father in Daniel 7, and Jesus is coming in his glory. And now we see Jesus, uh, his face shining like the sun. His clothes became as white as light before these three apostles. He's giving some of it, not all of them now, some of them, as he'd said in verse 28 of Matthew 16, some of them would see him coming. In fact, we know it's not a literal thing, but what he says in Mark 9. Mark's, Mark's account of this issue. He says in Mark 9, uh, in verse 1, Jesus says, And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you <clears throat> that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. So he's showing the kingdom of God present with power, what it will be like for them. Not him literally coming in his kingdom, but present with power. And so you see the power here, the same power he's going to come in when he comes in the glory of his father with the angels to set up his kingdom on earth. He's now giving them a taste of this right now. And uh, we see that uh, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now what did they talk about? Let's go to Luke 9. We can see exactly what they were talking about. Something that they probably had never heard before. Because as Old Testament saints of God, they didn't have full revelation of the gospel. It was a mystery to them. But Luke 9.31, it says, what's 9.30? And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and spoke of his decease, or his death, or his departing, that's what that word means, which he was about to, to accomplish in Jerusalem. So he's talking to them about his death. He's, he's almost like he's preaching the gospel to Moses and Elijah. Uh, something they're probably hearing for the first time. <clears throat> and uh, one thing this proves is him talking to Moses and Elijah. There's, there's groups out there, like Seventh-day Adventists, I think, believe this. I think even Jehovah's Witnesses believe this. Well, they believe in something called soul sleep. Okay? That when you die, you go into a, a state of sleep. Unconsciousness. And then eventually when the resurrection comes, you, you awaken. Okay? If you're one of the saints. But Moses and Eliza aren't, a, aren't in a, a place of soul sleep, are they? Uh, unless they're talking in their sleep, I guess, and having a dream or something. Uh, but they're not in a position of soul sleep here. They're talking to Jesus. They're in full consciousness. They know what's going on around them. Jesus is talking to them about his death. Uh, so soul sleep is kind of cast out the window here. And so we see he's talking about his death, which he just talked to his own disciples about six or seven days earlier. Okay? And um, then Peter, you know, we talked about this last week, Peter kind of puts his foot in his mouth quite a bit. And uh, we saw from Mark's, got, Mark's version of this, Mark 9.6 and Luke 9.33, that he really didn't know what to say, so he kind of just said something. And I find when I don't know what to say, I should keep my mouth shut. That's a good, good, good thing to have, good position to have, is to keep your mouth shut. And uh, I don't always do that, unfortunately, but uh, it's a good thing to do, okay, uh, to, to learn to keep your mouth shut. Um, Sometimes you get flabbergasted, you know. Uh, one of the, I give us this, this. Was it last night? No, before. We were we were in uh, in 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 uh, Nashville.
preaching at the Christmas parade there. And I'm just preaching, you know, kind of mind my business. I was in this little crevice there, preaching to people, not trying to annoy them, but I want everyone to hear the truth. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up, and my face starts yelling about Calvinism and predestination and how we're all predestined. And Calvin was the best, you know, theologian ever. And and I was like, what is this? Where does this come from? Why, why is this guy even bringing this up? I didn't say anything about Calvinism or even about free will, and he's bringing this stuff up against me. And he starts yelling and screaming at me, and and uh, then then he then he finally goes away, I guess because he thought he couldn't talk over the bullhorn. And uh, he, I, I kind of think I figured out why he was doing it because he was he was selling these little trinkets here at this parade, and um, you know he, I guess he thought that I wasn't hurting his business, which I wasn't attempting to. I didn't even see him there. I think he pulled up there even after we got there. So, uh, but I I probably should have said nothing to him uh, because. I, I mean, I was kind of flabbergasted. I didn't know what to say to him. I don't remember what I said. I hope it wasn't anything bad, but, uh, you know, I, I probably should have said nothing to him because I, I didn't know what to say to him. Uh, but when it, when it comes to not, you know, he was fe- Peter was fearful here, but when it comes to not knowing what to say, we should just keep our mouth shut. And John and James did a good job with that. They did a good job. Um, <coughs> and this is what was uh, was said there. While, he, while Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now this is a quote from Isaiah 42. Let's go to Isaiah 42. And we'll see what that's talking about here. I'll read through verse 4. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. And, you know, I'm sure the apostles would have known about this scripture, and they would have known uh, what would be referred to here. Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the close coastland shall wait for his law. Now, what's that last verse referring to there? Where it says, till he established justice in the earth. His kingdom. Kingdom coming. So even in the midst of this, Jesus giving him a taste of what he's going to be like when he comes in his kingdom, God the Father in a cloud says to the disciples, a scripture which, if you read through, is talking about Christ coming in his kingdom. And so we see in verse 28, it's not referring to Jesus destroying Jerusalem in AD 70, as some preterists may have you believe. It's not talking about some mystical spiritual kingdom here on earth, as the amillennialists would have you believe. It's talking about him giving them a taste of the literal kingdom, which will come later on, as the post-trib uh, Biblinians would have you believe. <laughs> but... Um, and so you see this, and there's also another passage that, that came to my mind when I, I hear this, my beloved son thing, is Psalm chapter 2. Now oftentimes, I remember saying this recently in open air when I was at uh, Volunteer State Community College, uh, as they raged and raged, why do the heathens rage? Uh, but that's a prophetic thing from Psalm 2, talking about the Messiah coming in his kingdom. And in Psalm 2 it says this, it says, why do the nations rage? <clears throat> and the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little... Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So once again, you know, this you today you are my son. 
which is what God is saying in this cloud. This is my beloved son. And who will receive the nations as his inheritance? Jesus will. And how do we take part in that inheritance? By being in him. By being in him, we have an inheritance with him. And that's the only way. The nations will belong to him. But the nations rage, and it's a vain thing, an empty thing, a worthless thing for them to... It's just like the devil. They're just like their father the devil to try to throw off the God's authority over them. And it's no wonder God laughs at them. Do they really think they can throw off the king of the universe and his authority over them? Do they really think that's possible? Not very logical thinking there. <clears throat> this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And so we, we see this, uh, this issue being talked about here, and, and we see it's always referring back to the kingdom. Now what I want to do now, I want to go to Second Peter, chapter 1, which will affirm what I believe, verse 28 is saying again, Peter interprets it this way. Second Peter, chapter 1. And, you know, when it comes to Scripture, we always interpret Scripture with Scripture. Okay, oftentimes the Scripture will interpret the Bible for us. Especially when it comes to the Old Testament. If we don't understand what it's saying, a lot of times the New Testament will interpret it for us and help us understand it. So to come to verse 28, let's see what Peter has to say. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, we see in verses 5 through 8 how he's admonishing them to be fruitful, to let self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, etc., and in verse 10 he says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, the things he's talking about in verses 5 through 8, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you, into what? Abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's the context he's going to talk about here, about being entering into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. He's reminding them. It's a good practice, Peter. Reminding, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent or this body they are living in, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that surely I must put off my tent, that means he's going to die, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me, which he'd be crucified. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure you Sure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease, my departure, my death. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We made known to you the, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the context here. Coming and power. We did not follow cunningly devised fables regarding this. Or about being entering into Christ's kingdom. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, let's see what he's talking about here. When he was an eyewitness of Christ's majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. What prophetic word does he have confirmed? Well, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and his power and majesty. The entering into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it was confirmed for Peter, for James, for John, and for each person they talk about this eyewitness account too, is confirmed not by some cunningly devised fable, but through Jesus Christ himself revealing to them on that holy mountain a, a part of what they will look like when he actually comes in his kingdom, which is what Peter is talking about right now. The literal kingdom coming of Jesus Christ in his kingdom, and how that was established and it was confirmed to him and James and John by what, be, what Jesus did on that mount and how God declared from that mount, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So what I'm asserting to you is that they would have thought back to Isaiah 42 and they would have thought, thought back to Psalm 2 when they heard God declare that on that mount. And so all these things are working together. You see how this all kind of goes together here? And how people who try to take Matthew 16, 28 and twist it and make it say something it doesn't actually say? Now, it wasn't Jesus Christ coming in power and glory in AD 70 and destruction of Jerusalem. It wasn't him coming in glory in a spiritual mystical way, which we can't see. It's him giving us a taste of what he will be like when he actually does come. 
And he was confirming to Peter, James, and John the, the prophetic word that he will return. And then when he does return, he'll come in the majesty and power of God the Father. The glory of God the Father. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until a day dawns and a morning star rises in your hearts. So the prophetic word is confirmed. They're not just saying we heard it from somebody else. We saw with our own eyes. Remember, Peter didn't know what to say. He was so fearful. He was kind of flabbergasted. He said, well, let's just make some tents here for you and for Moses and Elijah, Lord. And, uh, but he saw it with his own eyes. There's not a second-hand account here. He said, you would do well to heed the prophetic word because what greater approval could you have than God the Father saying from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. No greater approval than that, friends. So the prophetic word was confirmed to Peter, and he's declaring it to them about the coming, and they need to make their calling and election sure. Uh, and if, if someone, let's just read through verse 5 and verse 8 just for a second here. Because that's the exhortation he's giving them in preparation for that coming, so they can be prepared. But also for this very reason, given all diligence to, to your, uh, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted. He's not looking ahead very far, is he? He's short-sighted. Now, looking back very far either, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Never stumble. Interesting. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, it says in verse 9, he forgot that his, he was cleansed from his, what sins? Old sins. Not his new sins, not his future sins. His old sins. Okay? So, Peter is giving a commentary, so to speak, on Matthew 16, 28, through Matthew 17, 13. He's explaining it for us. There's no confusion to be had on what verse 28 is saying. We know what it's saying. Peter interprets it for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's go back to Matthew 17. <clears throat> yeah, it really does explain it, doesn't it? And uh, it just goes to say, again, that people come to the text with their own ideas and force it upon it, which is called eisegesis, or they don't have enough knowledge of the whole of Scripture to interpret it properly. It says, Scripture must be interpreted with Scripture. You know, another thing we see here in, in verse 5 is a picture of the Trinity. Now, the Holy Spirit isn't talked about here, but we do see two parts of the Godhead. And so for those who are oneness Pentecostals, those who don't believe in three persons, one God, they're going to have a great problem with this. What is Jesus doing here? Throwing his voice into the cloud and saying it about himself? That he's his own beloved son in whom he is well pleased? Hear me? How is it possible? Is he having some kind of schizophrenia here? No, this is God the Father declaring this about his Son. So the disciples heard this, and they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, and they saw no one but Jesus only. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, in Mark 9, in his uh, account of this, um, he gives some insight into the apostles after what Jesus, after Jesus said to them, don't tell anyone until I'm risen from the dead. It says in verse 10 of Mark 9, it says, So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And then we saw um, last week as we looked ahead into the, the gospel account that even the unbelieving 
Jews who were against Jesus, who set the guards on the tomb, even they understood that he was declaring he would rise from the dead. But for some reason, the apostles weren't getting it. Uh, I, don't ask me why. I don't know why they're not getting it yet, but they're still not getting this rise from the dead thing. And um, I don't know why. I really don't. Maybe someone else has some insight on that, but I don't know why they're not getting it. Uh, Yeah, they were despairing. They even went back to their jobs. And Mary Magdalene came to them, and the woman came to them and told them he'd risen from the dead. They're like, no, no, you're crazy. You don't talk about it. They came to the tomb, and they were surprised. They were astonished that he wasn't there. And so, I don't know why they weren't getting it, but they weren't. But thank God they eventually got it. <laughs> and, and then in verse 10, uh, his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, what passage is this referring back to? Malachi chapter 4. We talked about this a lot in this fellowship. And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Now, People can confuse on this point here, because he's about to talk about John the Baptist. He's talking about two different people here. Not one person, two different people. Because in verse 11 it says, Elijah is coming. That's future tense. Is John the Baptist in the future or in the past? Past. Malachi 4, let's go there. You guys got to have this down for eschatology, about who it's referring to here, and who one of the, who's one of the witnesses going to be? Elijah. Do we know who the other witness is going to be? Maybe, you know, because Moses is appearing here, maybe it'll be Moses. I mean, it doesn't say that, but maybe. And you look at some of the the plagues that we think that the two witnesses called down in the first three and a half years on earth. I mean, a lot of them seem similar to what the plagues in Egypt. So that's a sign, too. I don't really know. Okay, so Malachi 4. Behold, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And day which is coming, which is coming, shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. They will leave neither root nor branch, but to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. You shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, here's Moses again being mentioned, which I commanded him in Oreb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And will turn the hearts of their fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. All right, so that's Elijah. The literal Elijah being talked about there in Malachi chapter 4. And so in verse 11, Jesus is talking about the literal Elijah coming, which is future tense, and he will restore all things as Malachi 4 just Elaborated on before the great and terrible and dreadful day of the Lord. That's not like his first coming or his second coming. Yeah, the first coming wasn't great and dreadful for the wicked, was it? It was probably more great and dreadful for the Lord. The wicked thought they had victory over him, but he conquered the grave. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And so we see that. And when the literal Elijah comes, uh, the wicked will suffer at his hands. Now, he will eventually die, and they'll you know, make a holiday out of it, so, so to speak. Uh, but they will suffer at Elijah's hand next time. And when the Lord comes a second time, he won't be suffering this time. The wicked will suffer. And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Elijah and John the Baptist? Elijah has come already. It's past tense and did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished. Yeah, I guess that's possible. I think I'm personally leaning more towards Moses or Enoch because of the early church fathers saying that. And because he never died. But other than that, we really don't have any other 
don't really have much information about Enoch, to be honest. We know that he talked about in Jude, that Enoch talked about Christ's return, because Jude quotes it. And uh, he says in Jude 14, And Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord come to ten thousand of his saints. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So, anyway. All right. So, hopefully, it makes sense now what Matthew sixteen twenty is talking about. And um, you know, if you run into a preterist or an amillennialist, and they want to, dis this is one of the main verses they'll bring up. Uh, to support their position, you can hopefully see them, show them from Second Peter chapter one, verses ten through, I think eighteen. Uh, Peter gives us the interpretation of what he's talking about here. It all goes together just fine. And, you know, one, one reason I couldn't be talking about AD 70 there is because, once again, I, I didn't bring this up, but it says some, not one. The only apostle that was still alive when that happened was John the Apostle. All the rest of them were dead by then, according to church history. <clears throat> so. All right. Questions, objections, anything to add? Yeah, he's sure. Probably went too quickly through that, huh? <clears throat> um, Isaiah forty-two. Uh, in in Jesus, I mean, God says from heaven, He says, uh, "Behold, uh, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him." And. Uh, we see this quoted in uh, Matthew twelve eighteen to behold my servant whom I have chosen my beloved and whom my soul is well pleased. In Matthew twelve eighteen, it's quoted from Isaiah forty two as well. So Isaiah forty two one through four, when he's saying, "Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one whom my soul delights," it's very similar to what he's saying here in, in Matthew seventeen, what God is saying from heaven. Well, it's it's probably from the Septuagint in Matthew 12. That's why there's a little bit of difference there. Yeah. And the Septuagint actually, I think, says, Behold my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. But this is very similar. I mean, if, even from the Hebrew. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, whom my soul delights. Very similar to saying, my well pleased. And the elect one, he is the Son. And... Uh, what, what I'm asserting to you by bringing Psalm, Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2 into it is that when they hear that from heaven they're going to be thinking about that. That's probably what's going to be coming to their mind. Because it's basically what God the Father is quoting from. And, and what Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 are both talking about is the literal coming of Jesus at the end with, uh, to get the kingdom. You see that in verse 4, until he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. The coastlands means the border of the lands. So all the borders of the lands are going to be waiting for his law. He's ruling over the whole earth now. 
he's establishing justice in the earth. He's ruling over them with a rod of iron. And so you see that in Psalm 2 as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, just just fly across America on an airplane, and you see that there's not many people in Montana or Idaho. Or yeah, yeah, mostly in the coastlands. Yeah. So it all comes together. Yeah, it's all coming together. I mean, every, everything that. Right, everything that happens in that passage in Matthew 17 is referring to the end times. Christ coming in his kingdom. Verse 28, verse 27 of Matthew 16, and then everything that happens in the midst of there. How he appears, who he's talking to, Elijah, at least Elijah anyway, and possibly Moses too. What he's talking about. What he's talking about, his death, and... Yeah, I don't know how long they're talking for. If you go to the other accounts of this, the disciples were actually sleeping at first. They were sleeping at first. And when they they woke up, they realized who was there. So we don't know how long they were take, talking for. They could have been talking for an hour, for all we know. Uh, and, and, it, and if that's true, maybe he was telling them what they're going to preach. You know, Because you, you, you know, in Revelation, uh, we always talk about uh, fear of God, for this is the gospel. And... In that, that passage, that talks about the three angels. Uh, now, I'm not convinced of this yet, but it makes sense to me that these three angels are symbolic of the first angel is the, the two witnesses proclaiming the truth for the first three and a half years. The second angel is the middle point. The third angel is now it's just judgment because that's what happens in the last three and a half years. Um, so I'll just read it real quick. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, <clears throat> for the hour of judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. The angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of fornication. That's the middle point. And the third angel followed, saying, with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God. And so that's what, you know, Pastor Tim Warner would say about that. I'm not convinced of it yet, but it makes sense. Um, and when it speaks of another angel, isn't there an angel before that? Uh huh. The first angel is speaking about the gospel. Keep in mind, angel just means messenger. Angelos means messenger, so doesn't necessarily have to be a heavenly angel. Uh, when it's written to the the angel of the church of Sardis, uh, I don't think a little angelic being is coming to Sardis and then proclaiming this truth to them. I think there's some kind of messenger who's bringing, whether it's some kind of courier who comes to get the message from John on Patmos and brings it to them, or it's just the he's writing to the bishop of that church and they're bringing the message to them. <coughs> so. But now, obviously, flying in the midst of heaven is a literal angel in verse six. But the question becomes: Is this symbolic or is this literal? Is there an angel up in heaven proclaiming the gospel to people, or is it, you know? So that I, it's just something that I brought up. I, I don't know if I'm not convinced of that yet. But obviously, the point I'm making here is that Elijah is going to have to preach the gospel. Um, that's how he's going to turn the hearts of the Jewish people back to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to turn it back to that. Okay, is by preaching the gospel. And so, maybe this is the point where Jesus is informing them of that, what they're going to preach. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm becoming more and more convinced of that. I think as I study this more. It makes sense. That's, that, that's typically you think of the most when it comes to the prophets in the Old Testament, too. Because Moses was supposed to lead them to the Promised Land. He said, a prophet like you will come. 
in Deuteronomy 18. Rise from your people, it will come. That's talking about Jesus. And so he's a lot like Jesus and Elijah. I mean, he's the most powerful prophet from the Old Testament. That's what people think about. Rise up and condemn you. Uh. Huh. I never thought about it in that kind of way, though. It's these. It's this language that says stuff like this. Um, let's try to think of some other scriptures that say some, the, the similar thing here. Yeah. Let's see here. Yeah, the That's what. That's what I'm looking for here. Um, let's see. Twenty-four thirty-four. But generation there does not necessarily mean a people from a certain period of time. It can mean a group of people from the same background. So it can just mean the Jewish people. And that would affirm what the rest of him says, that the Jewish people will not be destroyed until he comes back. He, that is their, if you read the Old Testament, it's, their, it's his chosen people. And he, he says that he will not let them be destroyed. If not because of them, but for the sake of the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. You know, for the sake of them, he will not let them be destroyed. And so even until he comes back. So that could be what it's saying in verse 34. But it's, it's verses like that that they use and pull it out and they say, look, this is what it's got to mean here. And I do, I, I do agree that in some fashion God came in judgment in AD 70. Yeah, Luke 21 says that. I don't... Sure. Right. Right. So it's, it's not, it's not a, they try to make it an either-or thing, but it's actually both ends. But the uh, he didn't he didn't come in the way he's talking about at the end, in AD seventy. No way. All the all their tribes of the earth shall see him, even on those who pierced him. Did they see him come back in AD seventy? Did he flash from the east to the west? Did people say let the rocks fall upon us, for the, the great day of the Lamb's wrath has come? Did, I mean, did, they, did these things happen in AD seventy? Did the sun turn to to blood and the moon turn to black as sackcloth in AD seventy? These things didn't happen. Yes. Isn't this the same kind of issue that one of the Gnostic groups had? So I read about it somewhere in the in the writings of the church. Where they had like there were some that say the resurrection already passed. <clears throat> I'm not sure if it was the Gnostics, but Paul is addressing them Thessalonians. Yeah, yeah. Do not be shaken in thought as if the day of his coming has already come. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was obviously way before seventy, so I don't know. Right, right. So I don't think he's referring to that, but there were some people who were saying, "Yeah, he's he's already come," and and. Paul is saying, no, no, he hasn't, he hasn't already come. It's in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2. No, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, for the day of Christ had come. So he does address that in the early church days, but that's written before 87. Paul died before 87. He died in the 60s, so... I don't know. Not that I'm aware of. Some of them would say that Revelation was written before AD 70. But this is, that's ridiculous because uh, the banishing to Patmos for prisoners doesn't happen until Dominician's reign. He reigned in the 90s. And so, and all the early church fathers who talk about John the Apostle and Revelation, they say that he wrote it in the 90s under Dominician's reign on the island of Patmos. That's what they say. 
And he, he says that about himself, that he's on the island of Patmos. Yeah, yeah. And so he was banned there, banned there for the word of God, that's what he says. Um, but in Matthew 24, there's, you know, there's three questions he's, asked, being, he's been asked by his disciples in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of age? When will these things be? Going back to verse 2. Do you not see all these things? As surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another, and that, that shall not be thrown down. They were looking at the temple. So he's being asked three questions. He's addressing three questions. One's about the temple they're seeing right before them. The other two questions he's answering about the end times. The sign of his coming and of the end of the age. And so there's three different questions being asked there. So he does address, just does address the AD 70 issue to some degree. Uh, and there are some similarities uh, between the new temple that's going to be built eventually and how that will be destroyed or what will happen in Jerusalem and uh, what will happen in the end. Right. Yeah. And Luke 21, the beginning part of Luke 21, uh, he lays out, he lays out the speaks of the end. Mm-hmm. Right. Nations rising into nations, there will be great earthquakes in various places, famine, pestilences, fearful sights, great signs in the That's That's... Right. Yes. Right. 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 What will happen in the immediate future? Yeah, he kind of does a, He goes up the end times and talks about AD 7 and talks about the end times again in Luke 21. In Matthew 24, I think he talks about the immediate times first and then goes to the end times from there. So. It's a spiritual kingdom. There's no literal millennial. Ah, I mean the gates, millennial is a thousand years. There's no literal thousand years. So when Revelation 20 talks about a literal thousand year reign, Satan being bound for a thousand years, being released for a little bit period of time, what do they do with that? They don't believe in a literal thousand year kingdom, so is Satan bound all this time during this figurative kingdom? And what's this little time at the end where he gets released? You know, so they have to deal with these issues. Um, it's not chambers, but when he says, when he, uh, if they say here he is in the inner room, do not believe them. Uh, Matthew 24 and verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. Uh, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and, sh- and, gr- and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even elect. See, I told you beforehand. Therefore they say to you, look, here he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For his lightning comes from the east and flames flashes to the west, so also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, their eagles will be gathered together. Yeah. <laughs> Inner rooms means only some people can see him, and he comes back and takes him away, and yeah. not everybody saw him. But it says. Well, that that's the same. Word you is used in Matthew six to go into your inner rooms and pray. Yeah, so that is a secret chamber. Going to private, and so, but Jesus isn't coming in a secret chamber. If if you didn't know about him already, and someone's telling about him, they're lying. You're going to know about it before someone has a chance to tell you about it. You're going to know he's back. Before someone had a chance to tell you, oh, look, he's over here in his inner room. Oh, he's over in a desert. Yes. 
Sundar Singh. Right. Right. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 27. Is that someone tells you, look, he's over here. He's like, don't blame him because you're already going to know before someone has a chance to tell you. Lightning happens quick. Yeah, I mean, everybody, everyone's going to, it's not going to be like you're going to be hanging outside playing video games or watching TV or playing board games. The sun's going to be darkened, the moon will be blood red, stars are going to fall, meters are going to be falling from heaven. You're not going to be sitting inside hanging out. Twitting your thumbs, you're gonna be outside looking at what is going on, what is happening, and then, <laughs> yes, yes, right, right, exactly. They're not prepared for it. Why am I? Why? Why did I suffer it? At this, this, why would I be acceptable? You have to pray and speak to philosophy. All these things you have to be ready to get out of them, be ready to listen and go, and, and know what's going to happen. They're not shepherds after God's heart, preparing the people mm-hmm. for what's to come. Basically, the, the truth will come out one day to the shepherds who were not telling the full truth. So they're just like the. It really dulls you. You don't have the right expectations. It really dulls you. Just sit around, not prepared. What could that be said of us? Yeah, it's kind of like with Jesus when when he knew he was going to go to all that stuff. He, he told the disciples multiple times, and they still didn't get it. You know, we don't know for what, for what reason, but he did tell them, and they're still surprised. And that's kind of like what will happen with the yeah. pastors. But the pastors try to tell the truth and say this is going to happen. They don't listen. That's their fault. Or there's preachers on the street who are preaching people who have been told the lies in the churches. They're gonna, they've heard it, but they're not obeying it. They're not getting it. That's why they asked about Elijah. That's why they asked about Elijah. Was Elijah supposed to come first? Yeah, he will come first. That right there should have told them it's going to be in the future. He's a simple fisherman, too. And then they opened his eyes and they saw who he was and he disappeared. Yeah. 